Thanks for downloading this episode of On the Record Online with Eric Schwartzman, the podcast about how technology is changing the world of communications. To subscribe to the podcast or share feedback, visit us online at ontherecordpodcast.com, on Twitter at ontherecord, or send email to ontherecordpodcast at gmail.com. My guest today is Marina Gorbis. She is the executive director of the Institute for the Future and author of The Nature of the Future, Dispatches from the Social Structured World. Marina, welcome to the podcast. Nice to be here. So tell me, what is social structing? I, I know it's a kind of a complicated word. I have to fight through included in the title of the book, but I wanted to communicate really two ideas that with the kind of technologies we've created, there's a new way that we are creating value. The ways we are doing things that were not possible before are all, all of a sudden are possible. The kind of things that previously you needed the whole organization to do, now you can do it with one person or a few people, and sometimes we can do sort of unimaginable things. Um, with the power of these technologies and connections with each other. So the idea is that we're creating, we're doing something in a new way, we're structuring, structuring things in new ways. And the other part of it is that the way we're doing it is through connections with others, where you're using social media, social technologies, and ultimately connections to multitudes of others who we can engage in whatever activity we're doing. Talk to us for a minute about social media and um, education, and I'm interested particularly in professional development, education of people in the working world. Um, I know you recently did a a presentation on uh, the future of education, and I know it's something you folks think about quite a bit at the Institute for the Future. How do you see social media changing education in a professional context? Well, one of the important things that we see is that a lot of education is moving out of sort of institutions and the kind of resources that previously resided just in organizations or were closed are now widely available. So content itself has become a commodity. There's a lot of content. Almost anything you want to learn is out there between Khan Academy, Coursera, all the MOOCs, but not just MOOCs, but all kinds of other platforms where people share Wikifow, Wikipedia, you can think of Wikipedia as a, a kind of learning resource. So the content is all out there. It's like it's moving from institutions into these flows. So imagine that there is a kind of a river of resources out there and it's always there. So the the challenge becomes what makes people want to dip into those flows? What makes you motivated to dip into those uh, institutions? information and content flows and ultimately learn. And, and what is that? Because, you know, when, they, when the, those Stanford professors opened up that um, artificial intelligence course and tens of thousands of people registered, I think, you know, a very small uh, subset of them actually finished the course. Mm-hmm. So, you know, on, on the one hand, that seems like um, that's, a re- that's disadvantageous. On the other hand, It is, I guess, a way to identify who's motivated and who's not. Yeah, and, you know, we've never had an experience of a course 
course of hundreds of thousands of people. So even only a few of them completed, that's probably still better than um, if you had to take that course live. Um, so even if 50 people completed, that's pretty good accomplishment, I would think. But what motivates people are very different things for different people. If you're a professional and you need to learn and you need to pass, the test or exam or you, you need it for your professional development, you can do that for that reason. I think for all of us, a lot of the motivation is ultimately social. So if you're a young person, your motivation to learn is um, to be in a conversation with the kind of people you want to be in a conversation. So if you need to know um, if your social group is all about philosophy, you want to learn about philosophy. Uh, if your social group is about math or coding, uh, you want to learn that. So it's both for professional reasons, but a lot of that motivation is really social motivation for a lot of people. Now, the reason and that's why... I'm sorry, go ahead. Yeah. Well, and that's why what's interesting is what I see happening is people signing up for online courses, but then organizing meetups in physical spaces with the same people who are taking the same course. So that, and there they engage in sort of peer-to-peer counseling and and people learn from each other. So there's a lot of that going on. That's interesting. They're bringing this online content and bringing it into social spaces. Now, um, several years back, uh, people were speculating that in the future, uh, inner city folks or, you know, um, uh, people with less money wouldn't have access to the Internet, and so there would be this this, uh, technological divide uh, between those that have access to the Internet and those that don't, and now we're seeing that that's less of a factor. Everyone's getting access to the Internet. Um, but that the, the next wave will be this sort of motivational divide. Um, talk to us about that. What is that all about? Yeah, I think it, it doesn't mean that there's some digital divide that doesn't exist and people have different levels of access, but it's less so, and this time is going to be less and less. I think the kind of divide we're seeing is in sort of agency and motivation, the idea that, and that goes back to that social. If you grew up in, in an environment where people don't read books and they don't, um, they're not motivated to learn and they have different uh, kinds of ideas about what's important in life, you know, that that's a kind of divide. Or if you don't have the self-agency to engage in that uh, and take advantage of all those resources out there and nobody's there to, to show you that that exists and those resources are out there. Um, that's the kind of, I would say, it's motivational, but also social device. You know, it's, it's interesting because um, originally we thought that uh, technology would be this great leveler and it would put everyone on an equal playing field. And, of course, you know, Friedman, who mentioned you speaking about the motivational divide in his column, wrote this book, The Flat Earth, which said everyone will be on an equal playing field and big can compete with small. And, um, and I think a lot of us, you know, really believe that, but then we saw that the net result of all that uh, information online was that I guess some people who could collect that data and store that data would have an upper hand because obviously, you know, they could use that information um, against us. So now that we're sort of moving, you know, into this era where we're starting to realize that um, when we take 
conversations into a public environment where they're recorded and stored, uh, that information out of context out of context could be used against us. What sort of um, education do you think people need moving forward to learn to be able to use these tools responsibly without creating some sort of archival record that could maybe someday haunt them? Yeah, and I'm not sure that um, you can totally avoid all of that information because it looks now, you know, our government gets this information and a lot of other people have access to this information. But um, I think media literacy is a critical part of education and talking about these issues, about what happens with this information and also where is it going to go because even the the kind of things that maybe are protected uh, today, I I always feel that whatever I put online um, is ultimately public information and whatever is private today may be public tomorrow. We may develop other kinds of techniques for uh, protecting our information. I certainly hope so. But for now, you just have to assume that all of that information is public in some way or another. So, and that is, I do think that media literacy is something that needs to be taught at a young age and it needs to be taught to adults also. Well, I mean, for those that are uh, growing up in this environment, they have an opportunity to learn as they grow. But for those of us who are living through the transformation, some of us need to be skilled later in life. And often uh, the skills we need aren't clear. So what, I mean, if you were charged with skilling, um, you know, a generation of, of, of digital immigrants, and I know you say we're all immigrants to the future, what specifically would you do to prepare the workforce of tomorrow to be able to participate in social media conversations without necessarily leaving a, a trail of digital breadcrumbs that could someday harm them? Yeah, I've seen some really good media courses. Howard Rangel teaches um, a course on media literacy um, and that involves multiple components. First of all, understanding the kind of technologies that are available. I'm constantly surprised how little people know about some of the platforms, for example, things like Odesk and Elance for um, doing jobs and tasks and um, all kinds of very interesting platforms. And if you are not tracking it as part of your being a futurist, you, you look at these things all the time, but not many people do. So just tracking and understanding what technologies are out there and what's coming online is one thing. The, the use of technologies and how you present information is a skill, you know, uh, video, creating video is a new literacy also, so people need to be able to create video. Um, uh, you need to be able to assess the truthfulness of video and online text. Uh, there are all kinds of courses of in terms of how do you assess uh, the veracity of, of this information. So all of those things are important. How do you communicate in email and user groups? Um, how do you use comments? And what's a good way to be to be online. Do you, do you foresee uh, subjects like privacy rights and surveillance rights of employers being the types of um, things that workers need to be skilled in? And do you think that that becomes routine, part of the onboarding process at companies? I certainly think that that's 
should be routine, um, understanding how you use company email, understanding how you use instant messenger and who has access to that. All of that is very important. And I think it's in the interest of the employer to be transparent about it because there's nothing worse when something happens and people find out that you're looking at their data. When you're doing your work uh, at the Institute, do you, I mean, it's one thing, obviously, to take a class from somebody like Howard Rheingold, who's, who's brilliant in, in the area of media business and is a futurist. But when you think about an organization, I, I don't know, any organization with high turnover and a lot of entry-level employees who may not have advanced degrees coming in and out of uh, the ranks, if you have to teach these types of subjects to them, how do you do that? How do you make it so simple that you know, anyone coming in for you know, minimum wage or slightly higher job can learn things like you know, privacy and disclosure and ethics and transparency? I, I see it as part of basic orientation. Uh, I think a lot of employers have orientation in which they talk about health benefits and other things, uh, just basic routines of the organization. So I see this being part of that orientation, talking about data rights and data privacy and how to use um, online platforms, whether they're probably provided by the company, um, all of those things. I, I see this part of orientation. Tell us a little bit about the Institute uh, for the Future. Uh, the Institute has been around for 45 years. It's a nonprofit research organization originally spun out of RAND, large research organization. And at the Institute, we always say we don't predict the future. The purpose of thinking systematically about the future, which is our mission, is to help people make better decisions today. So we create, we use a whole variety of methodologies, scenarios, scanning, um, artifacts from the future, mapping, uh, surveys, data, all kinds of techniques. We say that we're methodologically agnostic. Um, and ultimately the purpose is to help people create that future landscape looking 5, 10, and more years out and ask yourself the question, well, what do I need to do today or tomorrow? to prepare for that future or to shape a more desirable future. Then you have this process. Yeah. Now, in terms of, um, you know, your role as executive director, I mean, you've been there a while now. How has the way you do what you do changed as a result of technology? Um, well, we, we're experimenting with a lot of different platforms in terms of doing research. Some of our people um, use platforms like Odesk or Elance and others to engage more people in doing research with us and for us online. Uh, we sometimes were experimenting in breaking down research tasks into smaller tasks and using people online in doing some of that work. I think that's a really exciting area of development. Um, that's one area that we're really experimenting with. The other area is we're using a lot of online platforms. We have a platform called the Foresight engine, which use some of the gaming elements, and it engages large groups of people in thinking about the future together, and what are some of the potential side effects of different scenarios, what are some of the exciting opportunities. So we have sometimes thousands of people participating in the conversation. So that's been really exciting. Um, and I guess the third area where we are changing is 
we are increasingly from just kind of being a, a research organization and thinking about the future, we're bringing people here who we call practical visionaries, people who are actually doing something that to us is a sign of the future and, and have them as fellows here at the Institute of Affiliates, so working closely with them to help them in whatever uh, thing they're doing, but also to bring their input into the Institute. So a uh, final question, totally, total non sequitur. Um, you know, looking at your bio, you know, you've done some very, you know, high-profile keynotes. Uh, you know, you've keynoted the World Economic Forum. I can't imagine anything from a keynote standpoint more intimidating than that. <laughs> to talk to us a little bit about the, from an emotional standpoint, what you go through before going on stage at the World Economic Forum to give a keynote and, and how you get through that. You know, my largest presentation was for 5,000 people, and I've never seen 5,000 people assembled in one place for a presentation. That was a couple of years ago, and I just, it was just amazing. And of course, I was really worried, but then it went really well. It's only 20 minutes of care, right? And after you've done that, nothing else scares you anymore. It's sort of, oh, hundreds of people, I can do that. That doesn't mean, but you know, I always try to, I never use the same speech, so I always think about my audience and who the people in the are and vary whatever I'm saying depending on that. Marina Gorbis, Executive Director of the Institute for the Future, thank you for joining us. Thank you. You've been listening to On the Record Online with Eric Schwartzman, the podcast about how technology is changing the world of communications. To subscribe to the podcast or share feedback, visit us online at ontherecordpodcast.com, on Twitter at ontherecord, or send email to ontherecordpodcast at gmail.com.